It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals, each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, the Freedom Convoy known as the Canadian Trucker Protest, converged on the city of Ottawa, the capital of Canada, on January 28th. The protests began in opposition to the government's introduction of a mandate requiring all cross-border truck drivers to be vaccinated against COVID-19. On Sunday, February 20th, the weeks-long protest in the streets of Ottawa had been largely cleared, not because the truckers felt like their voices were heard and decided to go home. On the contrary, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced on February 14th he was invoking the Emergencies Act for the first time in Canada's history. The act allowed for Ottawa police to use pepper spray and stun grenades to disperse crowds, tow away over 70 vehicles, and arrest 191 people, bringing a total of 389 charges against 103 of them. In addition, the Federal Royal Canadian Mounted Police ordered a freeze on 206 bank and corporate accounts managing millions in funds related to the protest. They also flagged 353 Bitcoin addresses and forbid local crypto exchanges from facilitating transactions with the accounts. I've never witnessed such government overreach in a democratic country in my lifetime. Here, to provide more information about the events as they unfolded, I'm really pleased to welcome my friend and guest, the Honorable John Baird. John, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you, Newt. You know, in your many years in public life, 
both federal and local. Have you seen anything like the trucker protest and the Trudeau reaction? I think this was all sparked by the federal government and Prime Minister Trudeau's decision to bring in the mandate for vaccinations for truckers that are coming across the borders. From the get-go, I thought it was complete overkill because if there's one single group in society that don't need to be vaccinated, if they choose not to, it would be people who work and sleep alone in their cabs. So I think he was using it as a wedge issue that was political correctness on steroids. And he obviously got a huge blowback. I think it was the straw that broke the camel's nest, whether it was mandatory requirements for vaccinations, whether it was the shutdown, the horror that has been experienced in schools and in businesses. It was the last straw and the truckers rose up and Canadians from coast to coast, so many of them seem to be joining them to support them, which is something very unique here. The word freedom isn't used a lot in Canadian political circles as it is in the United States, but it was quite something to behold. Initially, I thought that The truckers didn't get a lot of support, but then as went on, they got more and more support, I think partially in reaction to the government. Yeah, I think it became more of a mass public versus elite issue. You saw average Canadians. You know, there's one single mother who donated $50 to the truckers' protest fund, and she's now had her bank account frozen, and she can't buy food for her family. The overkill in the Trudeau government is really disturbing. You know, part of the break seemed to be when the convoy ended up blocking the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor, which is the busiest crossing between Canada and the United States. Protesters also blocked other border points in Alberta and Manitoba. But the one between Windsor and Detroit was particularly important and really disrupted trade between Ford Motor Company, General Motors, and Toyota, which produce on both sides of the border. And actually, a number of their factories shut down And on February 10th, the Biden administration actually asked Canada to use its federal powers to stop the disruption of the border. To what extent do you think the Biden administration helped encourage Trudeau's response? Well, there's no doubt that he pushed hard, but we didn't need anything like the Emergencies Act to clear what was a a parking problem. I don't have a problem with political protesting. When it becomes an economic blockade at the Ambassador Bridge, that was a concern. But he didn't need the Emergency Measures Act. It was literally dealt with by parking enforcement and police officers in Windsor, Ontario. You know, there was sort of a mixed reaction because the, the truckers were noisy. The local news reported that for over a week, people couldn't sleep very well. They went on to say, I know people have had carbon monoxide detectors going off, building evacuated because of the truck fumes going on in the occupied streets. There have been ambulance and fire routes blocked off. And what might be more noticeable than anything else, a lot of the businesses in the busiest part of Ottawa have had to remain closed for over a week. In that sense, to what extent was the public sort of divided? I think there were certainly people living in downtown Ottawa were inconvenienced, no doubt about it. But where was all these complaints about businesses being shut down in the two years of this pandemic when we had lockdown orders, where most businesses were forced to close literally for three, four, five, six months? So it was a bit ironic, the complaints that ensued. So in a sense, when the government had you close your business, that was fine. When the truckers had you close your business, that was terrible. Absolutely. You know, listen, if this had been a Black Lives Matter protest, had this been a union protest, the government of Canada wouldn't have had any problem with it. It would have supported it up the yin-yang. But of course, it was people pushing for freedom, people pushing against government overreach, people pushing against excessive mandates. They got a lot of pushback from Canadians. So you also had, I know you're deeply involved in this, so you speak with a certain expertise, but you've also had turmoil in the Conservative Party in the middle of all this. Well, in the middle of all this, the Conservatives sacked their leader. They felt he wasn't being strong enough in pushing back against mandates 
for the first time ever, the Conservative caucus had a vote and uh, removed the leader of the Parliamentary caucus. And uh, now we've got a, a leadership contest underway where freedom is actually becoming the big issue. The way your system works, does the Parliamentary caucus itself pick the leader or does it go to the larger party? We have a one-member, one-vote system. All party members across the country can have a vote, but it's similar to the Electoral College. Every constituency in the House of Commons has 100 votes. So one member, one vote. The Parliamentary Caucus can only remove the leader, not install a new one. But that must have been a shocking moment, particularly for the leader. I was absolutely stunned at it because my entire time in politics, we never had any acrimony within the caucus. But it was actually a clean win for those who sought to replace him. So who are the contenders to replace the leader? There's two major contenders. One is announced, Pierre Polyev, who is a member of parliament, who's been the shadow finance minister for the last four years. He's by far the front runner. He's getting dozens and dozens and dozens of members of the parliamentary caucus and conservatives across the country. And he's likely to face up against the former premier of Quebec, Jean Charest, who would be more of the moderate wing of the conservative party. Does Canadian politics tend to break into west of Ottawa, it's more conservative, and east of Ottawa, it's more liberal? Absolutely. It's funny, when Stephen Harper had a majority government, we had 166 seats. 146 of them were west of the Ottawa River, and only 20 were east of the Ottawa River. And there's five provinces on either side. So the province of Quebec and the Atlantic provinces tend to be demonstrably more moderate. So when you say that freedom is sort of becoming the watchword of this campaign, what does that mean? I mean, how would they translate freedom into policy? I think freedom into policy is to return to more competent macroeconomic policies, excessive taxation, excessive control over people's lives on things like unionized institution-based childcare funding, things like high taxes, high spending. And then, of course, you know, the mandates that we've seen, not just from the pandemic, but increasingly government in Ottawa trying to control people's day-to-day lives. And people are beginning to push back on it. And it's something I've never seen in Canada. Well, as a part of this process, it seems to me that there's been turmoil in Ottawa itself, partly because that's where the truckers came, that's where the government's based. But you ended up with Peter Slowly, the police chief, had to resign. What led to that? I think there was just gross mismanagement of the whole crisis by the police. And not only he had to resign, but most of the police services board, the oversight board, had to go because it was just complete mismanagement. Here in Toronto, we had a truckers protest. It was well managed. It was over in 12 hours. and There was no problems whatsoever. But in Ottawa, it just seemed to be mismanaged. Did that affect directly on Prime Minister Trudeau? Were those seen as two separate problems? I think he just looked like he lost control, not just the streets around the parliament, but he'd lost control of the agenda and lost control of his attempt to micromanage this pandemic in a very ineffective way. The Emergencies Act is something I don't think we have in the U.S. It's interesting. It actually replaced the War Measures Act, which was used during World War I, World War II, and the 1970 October crisis. By the first Prime Minister Trudeau, interestingly enough. So, okay, as a non-Canadian, what was the 1970 October crisis? What that was is that the FLQ terrorists, the radical Quebec terrorists, had kidnapped the British Trade Commissioner and killed one of the Quebec cabinet ministers. And Trudeau brought the military in, a very clear demonstration of the force of the state, very controversial. 
It was repealed back in 1988 and this law was brought in. And the debate back in 1988 when this law was brought in, it would only be used as an absolute last resort if there was a genuine national crisis. And it was just such overkill on behalf of the federal government to use this. And the pushback on both the left and the right seems to be quite significant. I was surprised the way the Emergencies Act works. It really gives the government total power with no judicial oversight. The only oversight would be that Parliament has to, within a week, affirm support for it. And last night, by a narrow margin, the House of Commons endorsed the government's plan. Yeah, for 30 more days, I think. Is that right? 30 more days. So how did he pull that off? Because I thought going into it that he might not be able to get that done. He has a minority parliament, which means that he needs to get the support of one of the opposition parties. And the left-wing New Democratic Party, which is basically a Bernie Sanders-type party for your American listeners, shockingly supported the government. And it was able to narrowly pass. Are they in the government or why would they do that? They seem to be doing everything they can to prop up this government on confidence votes, on spending bills. And they came to their aid again. This is a very different type of liberal government. Our liberal governments, certainly in my adult lifetime, have been more centrist, where this is decidedly center-left. So is the minority party also worried about going to an early election? Trudeau went to an early election last September, and I just think he would be killed if he tried to go to an early election. And if he couldn't maintain the support of the House of Commons for even a year, he would be really in danger of losing. It also is noted that the Social Democrats are deeply in debt, have no money to campaign, so that could have likely influenced their decision. Yeah, because I mean, he's actually not in very good shape to continue governing. It seems to me that he's rapidly losing popular acceptance. We have a government that's in power with 32% of the vote in September, and even the opposition conservatives in the popular vote received 33. So it's a very, very weak minority government. Now, I noticed that the deputy prime minister, Christia Freeland, said, if your truck is being used in these protests, your corporate accounts will be frozen, the insurance in your vehicle will be suspended, the consequences are real, and they will bite. I don't like to call her deputy prime minister. I'm calling her co-prime minister because the prime minister basically turned this whole file over to her to run. She's a very smart woman, very capable, but she is decidedly center-left and it's real overkill in terms of the approach that she's taken. I mean, literally, in order to remove these trucks, you needed basically parking enforcement. And if people wouldn't move them, you have them towed away. And to need the Emergency Measures Act, getting into people's bank accounts. Now the city is trying to tell these truckers that they're going to impound their trucks and sell them with the money going to the state, which when it comes to property rights is just deeply disturbing. I'm curious because I read her book on the theft of the century, which is a fascinating book from when she was the Financial Times reporter in Moscow, and her grandmother's Ukrainian. I actually spent time with her when she was the foreign minister. It seemed to me that she'd learned more from Putin about how to run a dictatorship than she'd learned about how to be part of a free society. I mean, her attitude, it seems to me, has been remarkably aggressive about using the power of the government. Very much so. And I don't think this is going to sit well in time. I think the government's lost its balance in the way they've dealt with the whole pushback, the whole truckers dispute. This decision's not going to wear well in time. So you also have the Canadian system, which you know we don't fully understand as Americans, has remarkable levels of power at the provincial level. I mean, in some ways, it really is a confederation as much as a national state. So how have the various provinces responded to that? The government here in Ontario has supported them, which truly shocks me. There's getting a lot of uh, 
pushback and blowback from their supporters. Some of the Western Canadian premiers have come out solidly against it, even going to court to try to stop them. It's been a mixed bag. During the pandemic, though, most of the restrictions and lockdowns have been made by the provinces. And I think that there is growing fatigue with the way they've handled it. So in that sense, do you see provincial political leaders gaining a larger role? They already have a pretty powerful role in our confederation. I mean, they handle social services, they handle education, they handle health care. The bulk of the concerns that you know the average family would have would be dealt with at the provincial level. That's why the authoritarian streak of the federal government in this was so shocking. If I can, because I think most Americans really haven't followed Justin Trudeau very much. And I realize you represent the other party, so you probably you share my biases. But isn't he a little weird? <laughs> He certainly can be somewhat eccentric from day to day, that's for sure. I'm thinking about his trip to India, where he apparently dressed like he was Indian, and the Indians all thought it was kind of strange. That was probably the low point of his time in office. He went for a week and a half to India and wore different Indian costumes and outfits every day, to which the Indians rolled their eyes. I can remember being in London, England, and there was a four-page spread in the Daily Mail of Mr. Dress-Up. You know, here's a guy that, as a center-left liberal, was found to have worn blackface so many times in his 20s and up till age 29 that he couldn't remember how many times he had worn blackface. And, of course, the left wing and the legacy media gave him a total pass. I mean, even Barack Obama endorsed him in the last two elections after learning that. Such a different situation when that affected the Democratic governor of Virginia, who everyone but President Obama came out demanding his resignation. Part of what's so shocking about the seriousness of imposing this emergency power is that Canada seems to have been more laid back than the United States. I mean, we get all involved in, you know, whether or not people are woke or they're not woke, whether or not 26 years ago they did something inappropriate. I mean, if you look at the whole crisis at CNN, you know, where it becomes, do you have a relationship with somebody but you didn't report it? Have you been coaching your brother in order to try to survive a sexual scandal? There's a seriousness and a kind of pomposity in the American model that it seemed to me prior to this crisis wasn't particularly a Canadian pattern. Certainly we've seen the rise of wokeism in Canada. There's no doubt about it. There's a very celebrated clip of the prime minister doing a town hall type format. And someone said, in the history of manhood, we haven't seen that he interrupted him and said personhood, not manhood, personhood. So he is definitely woke, definitely politically correct, and the legacy media certainly has his back. We call the legacy media in Canada the media party, and they're always come to Trudeau's aid whenever he gets into trouble. So my impression was your media starts to the left of the New York Times and keeps going. Pretty much so, absolutely. Yeah, but that there's remarkably little non-left-wing media in Canada. Yeah, we have a few newspapers, but that's about it. Television coverage is overwhelmingly center-left. And what I would say that the divide here would be, as it is in the United States, probably more elite versus mass public. We call them Laurentian elites. And they have for years in Canada controlled, whether it's the media, whether it's the public service, whether it's broadcasting, whether it's arts and culture or business. And Trudeau has certainly wrote on that. Do you have any kind of talk radio culture like we do? Is there any outlet for conservative thought? Yeah, we have some conservative talk radio. We do have the National Post or the Sun chain of newspapers, but they're a small minority of the coverage. What we're seeing, though, is that with social media and new technologies, 
they don't have the power that they once had. For example, I was talking about Pierre Polyev, who's running for the leadership of the Conservative Party. He did an announcement video, and across all of his platforms, within 48 hours, more than 5 million people had watched it. And, you know, the top news broadcast wouldn't even get a million shows in Canada. So new technologies are really changing the dynamics here. We have state-run media here in Canada, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which gets a billion dollars from the federal treasury. It's a state broadcaster. And the federal government under Trudeau is actually funding the media to keep them alive. So whether you're a private TV station or a private newspaper, they're all collecting tens of millions of dollars from the federal treasury, which is, in my opinion, just not right. Well, the Biden administration and the Democrats tried something very similar and put it in a bill that didn't go anywhere. But they were basically trying to subsidize the news media in a very significant way. Yeah, well, they're doing it here in Canada. And the biggest thing about our political system that differentiates us from the United States is the government, regardless whether they have a majority or a minority, they present a budget and the opposition either has to vote yes or vote no. And the last time conservatives were in a minority, they voted no and the prime minister stood up and resigned. And we went into early elections. We came back with a majority, so it all worked out. But it gives a few people at the top a tremendous amount of power. Our parliamentary committees have very little power, very little influence. Even most of the cabinet have very little power and very little influence. It's five or ten people at the center, people around the prime minister like Christia Freeland. I think we've evolved in the same direction. The top two Senate leaders and the Speaker of the House and the President have like 90% of all the power. Yeah. In Canada, those five or ten people would have 99.9%. Yeah, so it, it makes it really a big deal to be one of them. Absolutely. And many of these people are unelected party apparatchiks who have no accountability. At least Christy Freeland has to face Parliament every day and defend the government's actions, where a lot of the party apparatchiks that are at the center of power face no such accountability. In that sense, the key people all have to go and win elections, right? All of the cabinet members are also members of parliament. So think of your system where you'd be a cabinet secretary and a congressman together. So when I was minister of foreign affairs, I also had to have my own constituency where I have to get elected. Okay. And do you have a party central office which helps you find a safe constituency or do you run in a constituency that you actually live in? The tradition is you run in a constituency where you have roots. But that is beginning to change. When I ran, I had to find one. And it was a marginal seat in an urban area in the capital, which is tough for a conservative. But the people there were good enough to elect me three times. And this kind of a model, but you don't have the sort of British style where somebody is handpicked. You know, Churchill, for example, got moved around in the 30s until they finally found a seat he could win. <laughs> well, it is becoming... If you're a conservative in the city of Toronto, you tend to find a seat in the suburbs or in rural areas outside of the city if you want to get elected. So a lot of members of parliament all of a sudden have a farm in the country that becomes their residence. We were talking about, for example, with Harper's majority, and I was just with Stephen in South Korea the other day, and he looks at all of this and just thinks, you know, the Trudeau's crazy. In this kind of a setting, with Harper's majority being, as you pointed out, overwhelmingly west of the Ottawa River and only 20 seats to the east. But the east itself is divided. You have the Quebec interests, which is culturally very different. You have the seaboard provinces, which are very, very poor. And then you have Toronto, which is your biggest 
they're all very underpopulated, aren't they? Yeah, they're in small populations. In Canada, comparing our parliament to the House of Representatives, you have a redistricting. And, you know, Illinois will lose a seat and Texas will gain one. In Canada, you can never take a seat away from someone. So my seat in parliament would have had 125, 135,000 people. And they get one member of parliament. In Prince Edward Island, they have 140,000 people and they get four. So it leads to lopsided political power for some of the smaller provinces. And are places like the very poor provinces, are they very left-wing or are they just interest group or what drives them? The Atlantic Canadian provinces tend to support a bigger role for government, particularly in social services and transfers from the federal government. Somebody said the other day that basically Alberta and Saskatchewan produce most of the revenue, which then gets redistributed. A big chunk of it. And Ontario, of course. Ontario's like 14 million people were pretty economically prosperous. Often people want to get out a, a counter and see how much money we're putting in and what we're getting out. Which is tricky if you're also the seat of government. The wealth that comes out of the greater Toronto region is huge and significant. And increasingly they're getting frustrated here that they don't get the, whether it's infrastructure or other spending to keep up with the growth. We have in Canada, you know, 400,000 immigrants come to Canada every year. And that's more than 250,000 moved to the greater Toronto area. So the population is exploding. Real estate prices are skyrocketing. And that's presenting a real challenge. Well, and Toronto's a world city. I mean, it's an astonishing center of creativity and activity. Absolutely. And it's not just in trade and commerce. It's arts and culture. It's science, health. Some of the best hospitals in the world are a mile from where I'm speaking to you today. It's a really dynamic place. The city of Toronto, it's 2.6 for the city proper. And a majority of people in Toronto were not born in Canada. So it's a very, very pluralistic and multicultural. As a proportion of your population, you actually accept more legal immigrants than we do. We have the largest total number. I think we get about a million a year. But that's on a population of 330 million. So per capita, one-tenth the size and taking four times more than you do per capita. Absolutely. It's amazing. And do you manage to assimilate them? We have a pretty dynamic, pluralistic society. You'll find enclaves of Toronto which with a heavy South Asian population or a heavy Chinese population. They tend to do pretty well in Canada. That's great. Well, listen, I really appreciate your joining me. I'll be curious to see if there's an American variation because there's a certain copycat effect underway right now. I have a hunch we'll deal with it differently than Trudeau did. I think the pushback here, maybe the truckers ignited it, but pushback against big government trying to control people's lives and the extent to which they've shut down the economy, shut down schools, shut down elective surgeries in our hospitals, and shut down trade and commerce. People have had enough, and they're pushing back in a major way. And the elites don't like it when they can't be in control. And that's, I think, the thrust of where Trudeau has brought in these emergency measures. Yeah, I think we've been through that in the United States, both on masks and on vaccinations. And there are amazing differences. I look at Marvel, at the collapse of the mandates in the United States, even in blue states, where they could see that they might have thought they had the public with them, but they all of a sudden woke up one day and realized the public was increasingly against them. Well, it started with football games. Absolutely. You'd see 100,000 people in zero masks, and you suddenly had a hunch that people were speaking in a very real way. But John, it's always fun. I'll tell Calissa we had a great conversation together, and we both look forward to seeing you in the near future. Give her my best, and thanks for you having me. Thank you to my guest, the Honorable John Baird. You can read more about the Freedom Convoy on our show page at newsworld.com. Newsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show 
was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.